So before I start the talk, I just wanted to um, remind everyone that the silence is um, so important. Uh, And sometimes at this point in a retreat, something will happen and it'll kind of break a bit. So I just ask everybody to recommit, to start again and to really commit and to really um, understand how important it is for everybody to hold it. That's why it's so important to have that um, idea of starting again. One of the things that uh, really affected me at the end of um, my first three months with Sayadaw Pandita, because I'd never seen it or heard it before, is at the end of the retreat, uh, he asked us all for forgiveness if he had hurt us in any way. And I remember I just started sobbing and sobbing, just like... um, just how important that is. And, you know, then he said, if anyone here has hurt me, I forgive you. And if I've hurt anyone here, you know, please forgive me. And I think that when we're involved with more than ourselves, you know, if there's more than one person, we have to know that because we're not fully enlightened, we do hurt each other and others hurt us. Um, John Lennon said that love is forgiving each other every five minutes. (laughs) You know, and it's just to remember that, that... um, Of course, Stephen and I ask your forgiveness if there's any way that we've harmed you. You know, it's like um, so important. It's a practice that um, we do every day. And it's a part of the loving-kindness practice. Some people um, do the forgiveness practice at the beginning of sittings with the loving-kindness. We tend to bring it in at the end just because for some people... um, it's so hard and it brings up so much stuff and for some people it's um, you know we've talked about doorways into the heart Uh, for some people forgiveness is the doorway into their heart so for example if forgiveness is one of your doorways uh, it's great to start it's great to start at the beginning of a sit or a walk I think some of you might have heard this story before, but I've always um, loved the meaning of it, and I've never heard of a... It seems to be an anonymous Native American story. One of um, the elders said when he was a boy, his grandfather came to him one day and said that he had two wolves fighting inside of him, and one was gray and the other one was black. And the gray wanted his grandfather to be courageous and kind and patient. And the black one wanted his grandfather to be fearful and cruel. 
So this upset this boy, and he, and he grappled with it for a few days. And then he came back to talk to his grandfather, and he, sa- he asked him, um, Grandfather, which of the wolves are going to win? And he said um, that the, the one that will win is the wolf that I feed. And this is so true, you know, if we feed the patience, if we feed the kindness, if we feed the courageousness within us, you know, it grows. And if we feed the cruelty, it grows. One of the things that I learned um, when I started to commit to the five precepts, and one of the precepts, of course, is not killing, um, and I, uh, at the time, I was in charge of the whole garden at this meditation center in Massachusetts, as well as being a cook. And I went to a teacher that was visiting then. His name was Tungpulu Sayadaw. He was a forest monk from Burma. And it was said that he had spent 33 years in the cave before he came to, you know, to travel to America. That really impressed me. <laughs> you know, 33 years in a cave. Hi. <laughs> you know, it's just like... Oh, yes, and he also hadn't lied down. He never had lied down for 33 years. It was one of his vows. He could read letters by standing on them. It was an interesting being... And I went to him and I said, what am I going to do? I, I'm in, you know, the garden, the plants inside all had bugs in them. And I said, I, I don't know what to do. I'm on these precepts. And he said, whatever you do, don't kill them. And I remember going to my room and just crying and crying because I just, I didn't know how to have the responsibility for these plants and not to kill And what I have learned in that process of living since that time period was that there is a a real basic fact that the more you kill, the easier it is to kill. It's just the way it is. And the less you kill, you know, the harder it is to kill. It's just, it's just how this affects our heart. You know, we, the more we kill, the more we get indifferent to the preciousness of the beings. The less we kill, and the more aware we are that if we're a householder and it comes to a point where we do have to kill, that we take it so seriously. We've alluded to this, and I just want to go over this one more time, about there tends to be two very different um, types of meditation. And it, it, and it is... Um, important to, to get that context over and over, that uh, one style of meditation is a pure concentration. And how that manifests is, say the room was dark right now, and we put a candle in the front of the room, 
And we asked you to just keep bringing the attention to the flame of the candle. So if you had some um, pain in your foot, the instruction would be to ignore it and to go to the candle light. And if you had a thought, you'd ignore it. If you, had, if you notice a sound, you'd ignore it. If anything happens, you ignore it and you bring it to the flame again and again and again. And the goal of that kind of practice is um, stillness, tranquility, a deep rest, and an experience of oneness with all things. It's like there's just, um, just, just at some point, just the flame. But you can see that there's a complete ignoring of what's happening, right, other than that one thing. So it's a complete repression, and again, to know that it's a very important kind of meditation where there's that rest from how things are. The other style, and of course we're, we're talking about two major differences, Vipassana is the other style, which is that you're developing an attention that is strong enough not to ignore anything, that will become more inclusive with everything that happens in the universe. So you compromise in that kind of practice where you develop an anchor, which is a rest, like the breath or sound or hands, um, but it's still moving. But you would, you know, you would, if, if, if you needed to anchor and come to that rest and stillness, you use the anchor, but then you open up your attention to whatever's happening, sound, sight, smell, taste, touch, thoughts, emotions. Um, and the goal of this practice is wisdom, is understanding how things are, understanding impermanence, understanding that because experience is impermanent, that it's unreliable. And that because it's unreliable, um, one starts paying attention more closely and you start to see that if you pay attention closely to anything, that it's insubstantial, impermanent, I mean, sorry, insubstantial and uncontrollable, empty, tasteless. So there's, um, in some ways you could say that both styles bring a kind of happiness. The first style is, a, is the happiness of concentration. And we need it. We need that rest. We need that stillness at times. And that rest builds up courage. You know, it builds up energy, courage, so that we can be with things as they are. So the art of meditation is really understanding how to bring um, both of those into our lives so that we um, have the skillful means to rest when we need to rest and to open up and learn and grow with things as they are, to stretch and to be able to include more and more experience. So the second style um, that leads to wisdom, it's called the happiness of peace. 
peace with how things are. So within this um, being with things as they are, Steve mentioned last night, Lokadhamma, the way of the world. Uh, Pleasure, pain, praise, blame, honor, dishonor, gain, loss. And it's, it's very important to like know that that's the way of the world, that we do face these things. Um, I think one of my favorite teachings was that the Buddha had a bad back through most of his life. And it, it, there's a special name for it, I forget the name, but it's a special kind of karma that stays with you through your life. Uh, so if you have a bad back, you know, it's it's helpful to see that he was human, and um, just because he was fully enlightened, it didn't protect him from pleasure, pain, gain, loss. You know, like Steve was saying last night, it's the human world. A bit over two years ago, uh, a little feral kitty uh, came to my door. Um, I travel a lot. I'm allergic to cats. Um, and she kept coming to the door over a course of some days. So I went out and I had a really uh, heart-to-heart talk with her. (laughs) And I said, you know, you've kind of hit the jackpot in terms of compassion, but, you know, my lifestyle is just going to be continual abandonment. (laughs) You know, I don't know if that's going to be so good. Um, Oh, she was so desperate, so thin, you know. And so, I, I, you know, of course I'm doing, okay, 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 I'll give you a little milk, um, but no solid food. Um, so for a couple months it was milk and no solid food. And I'd, I'd say to her when I was leaving, you know, if you're still here when you, I come back, maybe we'll go to solid food, you know. <laughs> uh, so... Um, I think this was May, and then at the end of August, I was going to go to Honolulu to teach with Steve. And um, she was drinking one to two half gallons of milk a day. <laughs> and I was getting, you know, kind of like, whoa. You know, I don't know anything about cats, but it seemed like a lot of milk, you know. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I called this lady, and that's a professional um, feral cat person. And I made a date with her when I was coming back from Honolulu because I was going to be home only a few days and going to Vancouver, and I was getting worried about her. So she said to me when I got back after two weeks, these are long periods away, um, she said, don't feed her, and um, I'll come and look. And this is the morning I was traveling to Canada, so she came, and I was running around, and um, she stayed inside my house and was looking out the window. I didn't feed her. And she looked out and she said, oh, Michelle, she's already had the kittens. (laughs) You know, one little act, right? You feed feed a little milk and then there's a commitment. It's it's deep. It's like complicated. When we make a commitment, (laughs) it tends to end up that you get more and more connected. so now I have three feral cats instead of one. 
and um, they are continual teachers for me in terms of mindfulness itself and it, and really in terms of um, trauma they're so afraid it's like they're so afraid <laughs> I can't even tell you how afraid they are so that if I make one movement that isn't perfectly mindful just the most perfect mindful slow careful being when I go outside I mean you can't touch them you, you know it's it's intense and I might just go like this and they just run and they're terrified you know, so it's been very helpful for me just in terms of noticing if I'm rushing and I slow down. Um, but they're very unpredictable. They're like, you know, I always thought that wild beings had a routine, but these guys, they just have no routine. They might, one might disappear for five days and I'll go out <laughs> on the porch and I'll say, you're disloyal, you know. <laughs> That's my favorite when I start feeling betrayed. And the, you know, it's like, and it's just this feedback system of unconditional love and love with control again and again and again and again, just every day, just never um, anything predictable. And some days I'll go out and I'll, you know, when they look at me, they look at me like I'm a weapon of mass destruction. Really, it's just like it's that intense. And so I'll, you know, I'll come out and I'll, I'll just think, why are you still so afraid of me? That's the other one. I'll, it's instead of betrayal or feeling like they're disloyal, it'll be deeply like, why? After all this, why can't you trust me? They can't try, they're afraid, you know, it's like, and it'll come back to that place of like, well, if do I see any change? And yes, I see a little change, but it's, it's, it's a change that's going much slower than I think it should happen. And think of this retreat. We all have a feral, feral part of us. And it's good to get in touch with it, that how, how afraid we get. Of, of certain things. If it's not, you know, other people's judgments, then at least it's the fear of death. You know, the fear of loss. And it's, it's like that lokadama, the praise and blame. How vulnerable we are to blame and criticism and how lo- we love it when we're praised. Even if we can see right through it, it still kind of feels good, yeah? <laughs> hmm. Our rate of change, our, the pace of our practice is um, I think a real obstacle sometimes. And it, it's so helpful to understand that this is more like an archaeology dig where you know, they have, if you've been in an archaeology dig, they have this little brush and they just patiently brush away, not trying to disturb anything. And what we're uncovering is greed, hatred, and delusion. But we're also uncovering, you know, the Brahma Viharas 
you know, all the beautiful qualities of generosity, forgiveness, morality. Like, it, it's, it's amazing, you know, this, this very light brush. Uh, I had done a few retreats. I had lived in northern Maine, and um, I had been taking care of this teacher, Deepama, that was so wonderful um, when she'd come from India. And I was feeling that I wanted to be closer to the teachings. And as I was dropping her off at the airport, I was tearing up and saying, oh, I want to move closer to the teachings. And she was just merciless. She's like, the Dhamma is everywhere, you know. And I was like, okay, (laughs) great. But then I decided I did want to. So I moved from northern Maine to Massachusetts, and the only job I could get was um, a pilot program where I had no training. Um, And the program was bringing people in this mental hospital who'd been in 26 years or longer, bringing, trying to bring them back into the community. Um, it, it, this friend of ours was shutting down the mental hospital. But there were hardly any funds in place to um, support the program. So, again, with no training, I jumped into this. So uh, I went to the mental hospital. I was given three clients. <laughs> so funny. And I went into this room and I met my first client. And so we're sitting face to face for a little while silently. And he looked at me and he said, Michelle, who let you out? You know, I've had a lot of intensely different jobs, and I've always felt like, you know, when push comes to shove, be honest, right? You know? So I said, I didn't get put in. You got put in. I, I, I'm out. You're in. <laughs> okay? Let's just, like, settle that one. <laughs> so, and then we squared off again, you know, and he said, um, okay, are you one of us, or are you one of them? And I have to say, I'd never been seen that clearly before by anybody. It was like I'd just been seen completely clearly. And so I I was like, wow. I said, well, the truth is I'm not one of you and I'm not one of them. And he, I could see he really appreciated that I was speaking what I felt was true. So then, then he said, this was like, boom, boom. Third one was... Are you going to be my um, friend, or is this just a job? So, you know, I took time again, and I said, well, I really need the money. Uh, It's a job, but I will do my best to be your friend. Uh, And I think he taught me more about... um, Maybe all three men that I worked with uh, taught me more about pace and like a rate of change that was um, so important. And that there was, I think that even my own um, ability to make some uh, 
change as well. You know, it's like there was one guy who'd been put in by his father when he was 17. He'd been in 28 years. And um, all he did was, he was like a peeping Tom a little bit, and no one visited him for that many years. I mean, just incredible stories. Um, and one of I, I decided to work the night shift so I could avoid a lot of the goals of the program. <laughs> and um, so one day I was substituting for somebody, and he still wore his hospital clothes. You know, this was not this was not going to integrate him into the community when he wore his hospital clothes. And he used to do walking meditation in the parking lot. Really, he would. He just would go back and forth in the parking lot, which was also not one of the goals for the program. <laughs> and I was sitting there watching him, and he always carried this little plaque with him, this little wooden plaque. Uh, and the goal, the big goal, one of his program goals was to, for, to get him to not carry his plaque around in public. But he kept doing it. Um, so I was just sitting there on the curb watching him. It was very urban go back and forth and watching him, watching him. And finally, this took me a whole year. He was coming in and I said, oh, that's a really nice plaque. And then I said, could I hold it? And he said, yes. And it was painted this beautiful blue, like the color of the sky. And then it had little symbols on it. Um, And then again, I got it. I said, oh, that's such a beautiful color, blue. And he went upstairs, and he changed his clothes. And he never wore his hospital clothes again. You know, and, and from one perspective you could say, oh, you know, from our perspective of change, maybe that's not a lot. But it was a lot for him. And it, again, it taught me so much about just the patience and just, it was so obvious, right? Can that be more obvious? And it's often like that with us. It's like there's something, you know, that's so obvious. And in my first years of practice, you know, I would be, for example, fighting sleepiness, fighting sleepiness, fighting sleepiness. And I was, I called myself the queen of sloth and torpor. You know, and just like so much of it. And finally this thought came to me, what am I going to do with all this sleepiness? It was just that, moment of desperation. And that, you know, like the trumpet that Steve was saying, it's like this little voice said, well, maybe you could try being with it. Maybe I could try being mindful of it. Just that's how long it took. So again, it's so obvious in a way, but it wasn't obvious to me. And once that kind of worked for a while, worked out for some years, then this aversion started coming out, intense aversion, just unbelievable aversion. And then I fought it, fought it, fought it, fought it, and there was another moment like that. Oh, what am I going to do with all this aversion? And again, it was like, hmm, maybe I could try being mindful of it, you know? And it's like, it, it'll be like that. It, again, in retrospect, in hindsight, it's always easy to say, oh, Great, but at the time that we're fighting and struggling, we actually can't see it clearly. And underneath all that was this loneliness that I thought was going to kill me. 
And I just, it was, again, a pace, that pacing that was so hard. And it was, again, that, what am I going to do with all this loneliness? Well, maybe I could try being mindful of it. But it's not like that decision in that moment stays static and everything is, um, it's gone. It's much more that you start there. You start getting a relationship there the beginning of a relationship with it. There's a cedar tree in British Columbia where we teach um, on an island called Cortez Island. Really old... um, And if you are on one side of it, you can't see that it, it's totally burnt out for most of the tree. It's huge. You have to walk really far back to see how tall it is. But if you walk to the, around the other side, you can get inside it, and it's all burnt out, so way up. And when you're on that side and you're inside it, you can't believe that it's alive and that it's growing fine um, and I always find it really inspiring to go inside it at least once when I'm there and just feel that our capacity for recovery and resilience, um, that feeding the wolf, like being able to no matter what, no matter how much we might have been feeding the uh, fear, that there's this possibility of feeding the courage. When I was on my way here, I finally, for the first time, had a a little time in Santa Fe and went to the Georgia O'Keeffe Museum, and they were having a special exhibit. And there was one painting that just made me cry. Uh, And and I looked up about the painting later. She did it in 1944 during World War II. And she was so upset by the war. And the painting is, you know how she did a lot of pelvic cow bones, you know, the, her pelvic cow bone series. And this one was just a part of it with the hole of the pelvic cow bone. And you're looking through the hole, and there's just this vast blue sky and the moon. So there's this vast blue sky, this bone, you're looking through it to this moon, and the moon is the color of the bone. Uh, And she said of this, um, sun-bleached bones were most wonderful against the blue, that blue that will always be there as it is now, after all man's destruction is finished. And I I think it's so important for us to really appreciate the sky sometimes. I know, I know for me, I'm very affected by when it gets oppressive and gray and heavy and rainy and then the blue sky comes out and, and to know that there is something deeper than birth and death. That's the point of, of the Vipassana practice is that, that, um, we face the impermanence to find something deeper. 
that you might um, appreciate. Some some already know this, but back um, after the time of the Buddha, um, he wasn't represented as an image like that image for four to five hundred years. And that the image of the Buddha is based on the Greek god Apollo. So for four or five hundred years, I mean, that's a long time, at least in my perspective. (laughs) You know, that's a long time to have no human image. And the image would be like a a tree or an empty seat or a footprint. No face, no body, sometimes a footprint. and how different that is in a way, and how important it is for us to know that. My, my initial really deep trust of the Sayadaws that I met was that the, the old tradition in Burma is when the, they give teachings, they're behind a fan. And when they walk by you, they put a fan up. This is the old way. So like if we, you know, a Sayadaw in the old way gave a talk, he would be behind a fan so that there wouldn't be any sense that um, you would be listening to a personality. And if you bow to the, the Buddha or to, a, you know, a, a monastic, you're not bowing to a personality. When I um, first started to look up the the... Pali, the language, uh, these teachings were written down in uh, the word for um, this, this gesture, Anjali. It's called Anjali. And the, the, the definition is gesture of reverence. And then, um, it's hard for me because I injured my body in March. I, it's the first time I haven't been able to bow since 75. Um, and when, if you make a full bow and you touch you know, the floor and you're touching your forehead to the floor, it's, it's a deeper meaning. It's, it's like you're, making, you're meant to be offering a full body, a full offering. It's a full offering of your own body and mind. But it's not, it's not to a personality. It's to wisdom. It's to, um, traditionally, it would be taking refuge uh, in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. Um, and I really like to remind us all that in the English language, for example, the word goodbye, just the word goodbye, actually means God be with you. It's been so shortened that we don't even hear that it's, it's like this honoring of the divine in someone. That, you know, it's like, how do we miss it? I mean, it's so sad. Every time we say goodbye, it would have been, God be with you. No matter what we, how we translate any of these things, this gesture of reverence with the hands together at the heart center, it's, it's like Sri Nisargadatta says, above all, treat yourself and others with reverence. Because it's the truth. There's a Zen... Um, teacher from um, the Korean tradition who would say, sometimes I bow to the dust. 
sometimes, you know, he did a whole long thing, I bow to the grass, I bow to this, I bow to that, and sometimes I bow to the dust. So part of this, again, is remembering that we tune into the good qualities of beings so that we're not just seeing the negative. There's a cave in Burma up above where we teach there uh, with Sayadaw Uwakana that um, when I go in it, I'm always touched by a quality of um, aspiration in there. And, and it's said there have been a series of fully in, be, beings, you know, monks that have gotten fully enlightened in that cave. And I, it's just that I'm usually busy and get there. And I, I might, this year I didn't even have time to go in, but I went in the year before. And always it's like it knocks me out. I just usually tear up and, and I get in touch with that aspiration to be free, the deepest aspiration to be free. And it's amazing how it can get in all of us so encrusted over. I think when we're out in nature, it's, it's, we see life and death, we see birth, life, and death so much, and I think it helps us to accept death more. You know, we see the trees, the dead trees, and the, the insects that are feeding off them. Um, you know when you see a nature show on television, how they're usually, you know, it's not all just pretty. I can hardly handle nature shows, most of them. It's like, you know, by the time it's over, I want to watch a soap opera or something. It's like the, you know, and I'll think, oh, lions, and then it'll be like, ah, they're eating their kids, and it's just like, ah, you know. So there's this range of, like, the inspiration where it's beautiful, and there's also intense. So I was... um, I found something that Gary Snyder said, and it's more of a fact, um, but he said, um, whale carcasses sink several miles deep in the ocean, and, and one whale carcass will feed organisms in the dark for 15 years. You know, that, it's like, that's amazing. You know, just these, sometimes we learn these things, and it's like, this is just the way of the world, Lokadama, that our, our body will hopefully be an offering for someone or some beings. Fifteen years. That's a lot of um, feeding. I think sometimes when we're... Um, on that threshold of thinking about our practice, it's, it's, there's so much we can practice. For example, generosity. You know, there, it's, it's, 
it's we emphasize the Brahma Viharas and the wisdom practice. Uh, but any time that I have been in Burma, every teacher starts a retreat, every teacher with generosity, and how it's the foundation of of life, and, and and really the foundation of a good practice. So you know when you think of the foundation of a building being rotten, you know, and to see like that 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 in the in this practice, in, this, in the, the tradition we're in, that really generosity is, is the, the, found, the basis of it. And, and uh, the story I told of the, the little kid who was willing to share his candy, that's it. Like if we can do that, if we can let go on that level, we might be able to let go of being identified with anger, right? It's, it's the same process, or to not believe the thinking. It, it's that um, voluntary relinquishment of identification. And it can be very um, light. It's, I think last year I was in this little cafe in um, Massachusetts, And there was a little girl there that was working on this, um, I don't know what you'd call it. it, she was gluing little stars and little animals onto this big piece of paper, and they were very sparkly. There was a long line, all I wanted was a cup of tea, so I was waiting there, and I started looking at her, and I asked her her name. And it turns out that this cafe was right across from the Emily Dickinson Museum, and there was a big exhibit that some student had done of um, some Emily Dickinson poems and sculptures that this student had done. So, um, so I asked her her name. <laughs> she was working on this thing, and she said, Oh, I'm Emily Dickinson. <laughs> and then she started, I said, Oh, really? And she said, And I did that exhibit, um, and, and, and I've written all those poems. Uh, and I was like, wow, you know, that's incredible. And her, mo- her mother was behind the counter, like, making faces, like, uh, you know, just like, oh, I can't believe this, you know. And I thought it was great. And so I said, well, your picture's really beautiful. And without going through the thought process, without, she just gave it to me. And it was so beautiful. But it w- what was so touching to me is that it was so not, there was no feeling of struggle. She just gave it to me. And I keep it on this table by my bed because I just want to remember that always for myself. You know, that, that that's such a beautiful way of being, not to, not to think about it. Because if you think about it, you tend, right, you tend to think, well, maybe I do need this. <laughs> you know, and there's so much we have that we don't need. Uh, but we just, you know, hold on. And that withholding reminds me so much of my moment-to-moment practice. I see where there's just a bit of holding back, not a complete just coming into the moment. And I, it's just like, what is that? that? Just that little bit of pulling back, not, not making it into the moment. They're very connected. Holding something back for the little me, you know, because it's so scary to just flow into the, the bigness.
And it's very important for us to remember that some of us are really good at some of these spiritual qualities, but we're not good at other ones. And it's to be careful of judging that, that say we're really good at generosity, but we're not so good at um, forgiveness, for example. That rather than, if you learned from the Brahma Viharas, this retreat, that you really appreciate and keep strengthening what we're good at and just start to try to stretch that muscle a little bit with what we're not good at. Not so that it's overwhelming or too hard, but you take a little dose of it and work with what comes up. Then maybe two weeks later you take another little dose of it and just see what comes up and not try to do so much that we can't do it. It's like a little bit, you you bring a little bit into your life and then you can do it. And then you can bring a little bit more in and you can do it. If you try to have this mountain of um, things to try to practice, it becomes discouraging and disheartening. And I, the power of intention, it, it's really the crux of the Buddha's teaching. It's kind of what distinguishes them. So it, it, it's, it's to know that what's being said is actions have consequences. One of, one of our students, after a long retreat with us, came up to me and he said, gee, I wish somebody had told me when I was younger that actions have consequences. <laughs> and it was so great, you know. It's just, um, if we act motivated out of greed, hatred, and delusion, then eventually that's going to have an effect. If we act out of love and wisdom, it's going to have an effect. And sometimes I feel like, hopefully, on retreat we get a picture of how mixed our motivation is and how ambivalent we get. And that that capacity in us to to pull back and wait and be patient. And to see that, of course, we have all these mixed motivations. We're human. To not hate it or judge it, but to see it. And then to see if a deeper motivation comes. The same action can be motivated from totally different things, two different wolves. And we can see it just like on retreat. We might be out walking um, and we might be bored and want to go get a cup of tea. And we might have aversion to the boredom. And we might just knee-jerk reaction, be bored, aversion, go get a cup of tea. And so that action has come out of aversion. So what happens is that the, the aversion is being reinforced. Same situation, you could be doing walking, have the boredom, have the aversion, and wait. Get in touch with a deeper compassion. Feel compassion. Notice if, well, do I need, you ask yourself, well, do I need to go get the cup of tea or not? Maybe going to get the cup of tea is the skillful thing to do, 
It's coming out of compassion rather than aversion. So I want to remind us all, from the outside of us, we can judge people to where we're blue in the face, but we really don't always know what's motivating somebody. It's hard enough to know what's motivating us. And often it's mixed and that we have to have, again, that real skillful pause to see if we can find what's there. We already know what kindness is. We already know what wisdom is. Often the deepest gratitude and tears on retreat is that we are reconnecting with what we already know. Reconnecting. The truth is the truth is the truth is the truth. It's the truth. It's why it's called it. I think one of the deepest teachings that for me is an ongoing reflection is how we really hold ourselves accountable and other other beings accountable uh, for our best and to and to have a lot of compassion you know for that holding accountable not to be coming out of aversion or attachment. Um, And one of Stephen, my motivations for teaching the Brahma Viharas is to really bring all four in because the equanimity practice is all about understanding intention and, uh, and seeing that we can stretch a bit and hold ourselves more accountable for, um, our actions. There's a lot that could be said about that. A little humor, or a lot of humor, I think really helps us with the loka dhamma, you know, that range of gain, loss, pleasure, pain, dishonor, honor, 
praise blame. You know, that there's just these opposites. Uh, there's an island up north in British Columbia off the coast called um, Haida Kwai, or the Queen Charlotte Islands. And there's a rich, rich um, oral literature that's, it, that's starting to get translated and to come out. And one of the descriptions that they have of human beings in the old way, um, they call us ordinary surface birds. <laughs> if you're out there, you know, you know, in British Columbia, and you're on the coast, and you you hang out, and you just it's a lot of little ducks and all kinds of little birds that are on the ocean, and it's such a beautiful description of us, you know, ordinary surface birds. Um, but that might not touch your heart. But there, it's very helpful each day, I think, to come to some kind of humor, a little bit at least. It's, it lightens things up. I think it should be on all the lists, you know, the many lists in Buddhism. That I, I just think that maybe it's so understood that it's important that it's not there. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to end with a um, quotation, well, no, a poem. It's not that well-known a poem. Kazuko Shirashi, born in 1931, wrote this poem. Summertime, the full moon, four days after July 27th. My mother silently went to heaven four days ago, and tonight is the full moon. My mother quietly completed her work, the last penance called living, when she breathed in and exhaled as if reaching as far back as to the Inca Empire. The thin river of her life trembled like a thread. Now everything is fine. She is happier than the moon. She does not have to wander about among the dark clouds. She does not have to shine serenely and slowly leave. She has obtained the permanence of her existence by not existing. Ah, I forgot to say thank you because your leaving this world was too soon and too quiet a sigh. What is called permanence is transient because it only exists inside me in this finite inside infinity that is a permanence, is now floating. Ah, full moon, please shine on my beloved, my mother. Please flutter like a spring breeze, quietly over the repose of her soul, like drops of light.
let's sit for a minute. And as Galway Canal said in a poem, can we bless and not curse everything that struggles to survive on our planet? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.